0: Welcome to Rumble Strip Vermont, this is Erica Heilman. Last summer I interviewed my friend Susan Randall, who's a private investigator. She's actually the private investigator who trained me as a private investigator. And we've spent a lot of days driving around the state of Vermont, working on cases and talking, and we never run out of things to talk about. So I figured it was time to do another show with Susan, and we spent an afternoon driving around talking. Her daughter, Lena, makes a guest appearance on this show. If you haven't heard the other interview with Susan, you might want to start there. It's on my site, and it's called VT Private Eye. This time we talked about the criminal justice system more generally, and we ended up talking a lot about parenting, single parenting in particular. The first leg of our trip is called New Judges and Nasty Depositions. Welcome. Something that you said you've been thinking about lately, you've been in this work long
1: enough to see defense attorneys um, become prosecutors not become prosecutors but become judges and what's been really interesting is that I actually you know you see these former defense attorneys and you think that they're going to be like sort of more on the side of the defense and they're not at all (laughs) it's kind of like oh well
0: but not even not even on the side of the defense but just more realistic about sentencing
1: Right. Or not when I say on the side of, I mean more able to see that other story. Shumlin has like replaced a third of the judges around Vermont. So it's actually a whole new crop of people that which is also really exciting. So a lot of the people that I've worked with for years and years have now, you know, they're on the bench and it's a it's a really exciting time, potentially. Um, You know, having worked with people that you know that they've been exposed to all of the reasons why people end up in the criminal justice system, they understand poverty. And um, yeah, having all these people that I've been in the trenches with just hitting the pavement for years, I mean for two decades, investigating on their cases, and now they're in this black robe, and they give you like a little wink and a nod, but they aren't even really allowed to acknowledge We road tripped for years. We got pulled over by the cops when I was speeding. You drank too many martinis after you got, like, a not guilty verdict. You know, these are the people that you shoot them stupid texts late at night, um, you know, watching Alias in the 90s. And now they're like, Your Honor. So that's been kind of funny. And I've had to also just sort of be like, Oh, I am still doing the same old thing. (laughs) You know, like, everybody's like, moving on up, you know, like to the east side you know what i'm like yeah hi knock 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 yeah (laughs) hi i'm here on a misdemeanor somebody (laughs) stole a pack of cigarettes you
0: know i'm thinking about the last conversation that we had and you had a really really horrible deposition Mm. you got to sit on the other side in a way that was extremely um Educational in a really unpleasant way.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that we get hired to do is to dig dirt on people. One of the things that, you know, somebody calls an investigator when they want to do a background check or you want to go, you know, one of our big jokes is like, oh, go talk to all their exes. All my exes are in Texas. You know, it's like, let's go talk to somebody's exes to find out all their dirt. And doesn't it doesn't feel great to go dig around on somebody's past, but I had the experience of ending uh and I don't know if I can get into, no,
2: you don't have to get into the details of it.
1: But basically really in a in a deposition try to discredit me because I had done therapy when I was dealing with a bunch of child pornography cases. So the attorneys that I was working for in this case I ended up getting a, an affidavit that was really important to the case to get the case dismissed. And the person that gave the affidavit actually ended up dying. And so my affidavit had all this weight. So there, the response to the prosecution was like, well, how do we discredit her? We have to create a story that Susan's crazy. And, um, you know, that's a really scary thing when you're sitting in a deposition to have somebody suddenly pulling out all this stuff about your life out of context Um, they don't really care about your context in fact no context is better and trying to throw you off your game so that you're defensive so that you somehow feel like in doing your job you're guilty of something Um, are they trying to say that you're crazy that you should not be able to work on any cases involving sex crimes because you had a hard time dealing with the fact that you had to watch child pornography Well, frankly, anybody that watches child pornography should probably have some therapy. There's a lot of vicarious trauma. So when you're, you know, when I was working at the um, Federal Public Defender's Office, one of the things that, one of the really odious jobs is that you have to watch the child porn to see if the enhancements apply. Is there bestiality? Is there, is it involve a minor under the age of 18 months old? I mean, it's Horrific. So you have to go over and you have to screen through this stuff with somebody from Homeland Security sitting there in the room. And um, you surround yourself with people telling you outrageous story after outrageous story. So for me to be sitting in a deposition and have all of that get thrown in my face, because I was seeking help to deal with vicarious trauma, I was, I was first of all, I was furious. It's 2014, and you're going to try to put me down because I'm doing therapy. Isn't that actually what we're encouraging most of our clients that experience a traumatic experience? Isn't that what drug court's about? Isn't that what family counseling? Isn't that what the Lund Home? Isn't that what the Howard Center is about? So you're going to be critical of an investigator who, on her own, goes out and gets some mental health assistance in processing something that's really troubling. So... I was kind of sitting there in this deposition, like, shame on you. But one of... So part of the job of of
0: investigator is digging dirt, but I'm always proceeding with the idea that I'm also trying to create context and to make a story that is true and makes sense. But is that a story I'm telling myself? Because whatever
1: you decide, whatever you find, it's not your narrative to tell. Well, I think that's a good point. I also think that... um yeah, we fill the wheelbarrow and they build the house, you know. So we get a lot of goods and then they figure out how they're going to string those things together in a narrative that works to the best end for them to advocate for their client. What is the best story for the side that we're representing? But to have there be this story that's being told, like, oh, well, how do we throw out the affidavit? Oh, Susan's crazy. But are you saying that that,
0: it seems to me that the, the legal system as we have conceived it or as it is, that's, that is how it works. There isn't anything out of bounds in that approach. No, I guess,
1: I guess it's just what was, what's, what's hard is when you're, for me to be on the flip side of it was, um, and it actually, you know what, it really made me listen more to my clients. You know you get the, you get the discovery on a case, right? And you read through it, and it's like everything's in black and white. like these are the text messages. Clearly he did this. Here are the phone records. Everything's stacked up and your client just looks like they're a lying sack. So to be in this position where they had stacked up all these facts facts, quote, quote unquote facts about my life in the worst possible light possible, made me come back to investigating after that experience, like, you know what? I am going to believe my client absolutely, and so I, what I've actually started doing with discoveries, I'll hand them a highlighter. I want you to highlight every fact that they've twisted or laid out in the wrong way, that doesn't, that's not accurate. And then I want you in the margin to tell me who are the people I can talk to that can verify that this is accurate. The next few miles of this trip is called oversharing
0: and snack buckets. Okay, So we're back in the car. We picked up Lena, who is Susan's daughter. How
2: would you say her job affects her as a mother? Well, I think she has a lot of compassion for people, and she also has a lot of ideas about, like, the world and how she, she's very open with us about her work and what she does. What's hard about what she does? Well, I mean, sometimes she takes her work home with her. Um, Sometimes she'll hear something really awful or have to spend all day dealing with people who aren't really generating positivity, and it kind of comes home with her sometimes, and it makes it harder to, like, have... just be sunny when she comes home, and she's a little bit... (laughs) Yeah, I would just say that. But I definitely... I feel like I have a more real sense of the world than a lot of my friends, especially when I went to private school with a lot of people who grew up in kind of cushy, really cushy, cushy lives. And I've had a pretty great life, but my mom's really kind of opened me up to a lot of the things that other people go through. And she gets angry when we take stuff for granted, like she gives us ride places and we're allowed to do sports and stuff like that, because she's like, there's so many people in the world. A lot of my clients would, like, love to have the kind of access to things and parents who care about you and and really su- supply for you, I guess. Or, I don't know. But, um, and... Do you, do you think that's a low blow? Do you think that's fair territory, or do you resent that? I think it's fair territory most of the time. Um, but sometimes little out of nowhere because our subject matter might not actually be relating to that and somehow it always ties into conversations well not always but most of the time it has some tie-in I don't know if that's always fair yeah I mean I I definitely can get on my little soapbox
1: and feel like I'm busting my hump and I'm like the Shelburne shuttle for a bunch of really entitled snotty-nosed kids that have absolutely no clue how good they've got it and it's all about their new lacrosse shaft and the the, I I guess this sort of there's this split screen going on in my life all the time where I'm trying my damnedest to provide the most that I can provide to my kids in the best schools that I can provide and feed them the healthiest food I can feed them and and if there's not this baseline of gratitude, I get pissed. I get really pissed, because I'm like, you guys have it really good.
2: I think you're just venting now. I, I, I,
1: I, yeah, you're just venting. So my family's very critical that I overshare, that I tell them way too much about what's going on. Um, and my thing is, I, it's probably a venting session. It's probably, I have to own the fact that if you're a single parent, and you don't have an appropriate person to talk to about everything all the time, you overshare because you're like, Oh, yeah? You think I'm in a bad mood? Well, try the guy whose whole family just burned to death. Like, he's in a pretty bad mood, too.
0: (laughs) When you talk about the split screen, I mean, everybody who works, um, and particularly single parents who work, have a more kind of um, market split screen I mean or at least management of the split screen is more stark but in your case how would how does the split screen if you're a PI doing the kind of work you do uh,
1: can you just talk more about that or explain what that does so um it's almost like there's the A storyline and the B storyline so the A storyline is I actually remember one day in particular Um, when Lena and Raz were in kindergarten, they had this great kind of hippy-dippy teacher, Ronnie, who would build ovens and teepees, and she'd bake maple syrup, and you would get the snack bucket, and the snack bucket would come home with your kid, and you fill it up with a healthy snack, and the kid brings the snack bucket to kindergarten. And there was one day that I was meant to go to this crime scene and deal with blood splatters, and um, it was like a really really awful gruesome murder that had occurred and they wanted to take pictures of this whole thing and I'll just never forget assembling the snack bucket and dropping Lena at kindergarten and everybody's in there like hello everybody and you know and everybody's like singing their little song and saying good morning and and um and they is that the wrong song What was this song that Ronnie used to sing at the end of the day?
2: Clean up, clean up, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Clean up
0: one. You just weren't on you just weren't around enough to remember.
2: (laughs) No, but I just remember there
1: being this like, wow, I am gonna leave this little bucolic little world of fairy houses and elves and everyone's boiling maple syrup and then I'm gonna get in my car and I'm gonna go to this completely brutal crime scene and measure blood splatters and take photos of blood smears all over the wall of a place that somebody was brutally murdered. And then I'm going to get back in my car and go pick up all these little elves with their snack bucket at the end of their day and try to be sunny. And I do feel like there are times when everybody's like selling hot dogs at the lacrosse field in their yoga pants and they're all like talking really light about this and that and everything's really goofy and I've got this hit list of stuff I've got to get done, and I feel like somebody's whole life is like weigh- is weighing on me. Um, and, and I'm trying to like volunteer to work my session at the hot dog stand, and it feels so stupid. It feels like a Richard Scary thing where you're like, what do people do all day? And I'm like, why did I choose to measure blood splatters? the flip side is there are days that I'll have like a stack of five inches of discovery and I just bring it to the river and I'm sitting in the middle of a river and my two kids are taking little naps on the beach and I'm reading and I'm billing out a federal case and when they have a performance at school at three o'clock I can go do that and I can work later that night or you know I'm not stapled to like a fluorescently lit cubicle with a pension and a direct deposit check and I feel like I have meaningful work. Like, I got some skin in the game. I really care about what I do. And I think not everybody is going to be great at sitting around doing glitter glue. Not everyone's going to be able to do that. You're, you might actually be a role model for one of the girls that know you as somebody that goes out in the world and works really hard and advocates. And, you know, there's just a lot of different ways to be a mom.
2: We dropped Lena
0: off at this point. Then this next section is called "Dog Walkers and Public Defenders." Um, you were talking before about um, your deposition and how hard it is to be on the wrong side of people telling stories about your life out of context, right? And I mean, I guess I wonder if you think that the the legal system, as we've Developed it is in is it inherently
1: um, adversarial? Yeah, I mean I think that anytime that people's egos are involved, things things get competitive and adversarial. I think part of what you run into is people seeing successes or victories with they're basically other human beings' lives as feathers in their cap or as a way to advance their career or I mean there's all these different motivations and there's all these different stakeholders in the game that makes it really adversarial. And I think that um, I think if we took a more of a stance of what is this case really about? What actually happened here, then I think we would end up with a lot less harm from actually going through the system. What I would love to see in the criminal justice system is here you've got all these people that are actually really good at their jobs, there's some amazing probation officers, there's some amazing police officers, they're judges that have been doing it for a really long time, that understand human nature, they're defense attorneys that really understand the Constitution and why they do what they do. And I feel like each role that people play, it's almost like if you're walking around a sculpture, you're sort of seeing it from all these different vantage points. What I find really interesting is that the way that people heal is they're actually able to tell a full story of what happened. And when you see a really fair sentencing and you see a judge that really takes into account... A prosecutor that did a really good job representing I'm representing the United States and these are our laws and this is how we came to our laws or you see a prosecutor that's saying I'm representing the laws of the state of Vermont and here's me doing my job and listening to the defendant and listening to the victim and listening and taking all of this into account and here's why I'm gonna decide what I'm gonna decide here's what's necessary for a deterrent here's what's necessary for rehabilitation, here's the willingness that I see on the part of the defendant. If you see people taking all of these things into account and then actually having the key players that were involved explain why it went down the way it went down, there's an incredible healing and there's an incredible sort of takeaway for everybody on these cases. And I feel like, you know, where I've seen this the most is, um, on death penalty work, the amount of resources that we put into death penalty cases means that you have an unbelievable thorough job done in the storytelling on those cases and a really deep understanding of what actually happened but what's tragic to me is that it takes you getting to that horrible of a crime for anyone to take that amount of time so most of the people that are on death row no one ever spent anywhere near one one thousandth of the resources that they've done to investigate that that they ever spent on them as a six-year-old you know it's sort of like all of a sudden you have all of these egos parading around and swaggering in court and filing motions and tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars and huge law firms weighing in to tell the story and it's like well where were you when his parents were having a knife fight in a trailer in Scranton? Could we use one billionth of the resources that we're spending on trying these cases with actually helping out the six-year-old in that trailer? And that's the piece that I would hope that if we tell a really good story as a, as a machine, as the criminal justice machine, that our social policy can come out of the takeaways of these stories that we, as we see them one after the other after the other.
0: Where are things now with public defend- in terms of public defenders, in terms of their caseload, and in terms of their experience level?
1: Well, for starters, I don't work directly for a public defender office. I'll get called well, for- as an outside investigator if they need extra help. What I would say is that, by and large, the, the defender general needs to pay people a lot more money for spilling their guts on the courtroom floor day after day after day. And I think that what ends up happening is that we have a surplus of attorneys in Vermont so that they get away with paying people ridiculously low amount. We get paid a ridiculously low amount. Dog walkers make more than investigators. So let's just get a handle on that. I'm not dissing any dog walkers, but I'm just saying, you know, if you're actually dealing with a serious felony and a triple homicide and you're going to ask me to march in and out of crack houses all day long, I think I could be making a little bit more than, you know, than we make. And I well, think you, part what's of... The
0: standard, what's the standard rate right you now? You can't for, make more than
1: $30 an hour as an investigator working for the state of Vermont. But then what you're told is that you as an investigator can't get paid anymore because the contract attorneys for the state of Vermont don't make more. You've got a whole crop of new attorneys that are coming out of law school that are willing to take whatever they can get. And so they're willing to settle for very low pay and incredibly hard work, and they're in over their heads. And if, if you do it for 15 years and you say, you know what, I need to get paid more, they're like, you're replaced. Squeaky wheel gets replaced. And Squeaky Wheel gets replaced by sometimes people that have zero experience without a lot of mentorship. I think it's an incredibly difficult job and it makes people very, very insecure and it gives really excellent public defenders a really bad reputation as being public pretenders. I think there are some amazing public defenders in this state who I have watched knock it out of the park again and again and they are fearless and they are fierce advocates and they work their asses off. And it's pretty thankless. Most of them are very mentally ill, very down-and-out clients who scream at them, who have absolutely no gratitude, who send them hate mail. Uh, they have stacks upon stacks of files on their desks. They're, it's pretty thankless. If they ask for a raise, they say, we've got a 25-year-old that just got out of Vermont Law School. We'll just replace you. Um, so I, I think it's a very tough situation, and I think it comes down to sitting down with the people that hold the purse strings and let them know that these are incredibly important cases that Vermont has a tradition of, I mean as far as other states go we're very liberal I mean if you look at the draconian laws in, in New Orleans or Louisiana or Texas I mean we're we're doing great in comparison nationally but I think we could do a lot better in terms of what we are paying Defenders in the state, and um, and I think there's a high burnout rate. I don't think there's any way you get what they call compassion fatigue. You know, um, you get totally fried, and then you know people end up going into private practice, and the whole thing begins again. But ultimately, it's the indigent population that everybody's learning law on, and the stakes are really high. I don't like as an investigator who's been doing this for almost 20 years I don't like being a bad businesswoman by making the choice to represent poor people and right now for me to get paid less than a third of my private rate to work on state cases that's obscene I shouldn't have to choose I mean there are a lot of investigators that like I just don't do state work you can't you can't actually keep the lights on and do that kind of work for me it's really meaningful work if somebody has a sixth grade education and they're getting maced in their front yard and handcuffed and face down in front of all their neighbors they need a goddamn investigator and they need someone that knows what they're doing and i shouldn't have to choose between like oh well let me take the case for the orthopedic surgeon and not that guy you know because i because it's it's a bad business decision to represent that guy that's obscene and i won't do it the last part of our trip is called Mashed Potatoes. I testified, I was, I think it was in a, it was like a big federal crack case and I was a rebuttal witness and so I had to wait and wait and wait because this woman had said something to me and then lied about it on the stands, so then I had to take the stand but I was really proud of myself. Like I had, I think I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at the time and you know, it was that sort of like you're shot out of a cannon and you kind of have like beach hair and you're sort of like, racing for the car but you feel like you got it together because you've got on heels and you've got on (laughs) like a skirt and you've got on a blazer and you look like an airline stewardess enough to be able to give testimony and not have the jury think that you're a total flake and um, so I'm up and I'm on the stand and I've just you know they've just read me you know sort of do you swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth you know your little oath and um, and I put my hand down and I slide it into my pocket of my blazer thinking I look really professional. and there's like a big mushy chunk of mashed potatoes that somebody <laughs> one of the kids had gone Ew, and like taken out of their mouth and like put it into my pocket um so I had this look of horror and uh yeah the attorneys kind of looking at me like what? what happened?
0: what happened? you were talking earlier about this, um About being, I want you to talk more about being a single mom in this job.
1: Um, I was just saying that when you don't have a whole support team and you come home at the end of the day in Vermont in the middle of the winter and you've got two kids in the car that you've just picked up at after school and they're the last one standing because nobody else was there to pick them up and you're stopping to buy groceries and you come home to a cold house and all the lights are off and there's been freezing rain and you've just had a day at the jail for four hours and your voicemail's full. Um, You understand when you go and you interview somebody whose husband's incarcerated and they're doing it all on their own. And sometimes they're not keeping it all together. You totally get it. And there's this level of compassion that I think, as a single parent, doing this work, which has been really interesting, is that I think a lot of people, you know, that's the other. These are these other these single moms, you know, they hear these statistics, these single moms who are raising kids who end up incarcerated, these single moms who are strung out with their addictions, these single moms who, whose kids have these rates of, you know, illiteracy or dropping out in eighth grade, I don't actually see them as the other. I'm like, oh, I am that too. And it actually really, um, it sort of weaves... This thread between you and the people that you're interviewing in a way that you can't fake it. You know, it's like if they're talking to me about feeling overwhelmed or they've got themselves walking around with a U Haul of shame about losing it on their kid the night before, I totally can relate to that. And um, some days you're an awesome parent, some days we knock it out of the park, some days we are just right there and we say the right thing and they look over in the middle of their game and you're on the sideline and you see the goal and some days I suck. My kids have grown up with you know you're right you're just about to like lie down in bed and read the bedtime story and then the witness that you just drove two hours to leave a note on the door of a trailer that the cleaning lady's brother's friend gave to them and now they're calling you collect so you jump up, and you're not going to read Ferdinand the Bull. You're going to actually take the call. And you're going to not only take the call, but you're going to do one of those <laughs> Like, you're not only going to have your mom, like, yanked, but now she's going to be a total bitch and, like, and snap her fingers at you to just shut up while she's on the phone. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's not that sexy, actually. days I wonder if I should have been a yoga instructor or a meditation teacher so that when I came home at night I could be sunny. I could come in the door and I'd be all all these receptor sites of like zen peace and goodness would be all like replenished and um, that's just not how it's played out. Instead um, I'm always a little late I'm always feeling a little spread thin. I'm always kind of waking up with a hit list of what I need to accomplish that day, knowing that I probably will get through like a third of it. My kitchen's always got some dirty dishes. There's always a load of laundry that I have to wash again because it's molded in the washing machine because I forgot to put it in the dryer. Um, And I'm okay with that. At this point, I'm kind of like, You know, it's almost like, you know when we say like you get old enough to sing the blues? You get old enough to kind of be like, oh, this is actually my life. This is actually what it looks like. So I'm not going to be a Virgo, nothing's ever going to be at right angles. I probably will always have a few dishes in my sink. And I'm not going to be the Zen mom. I'm going to be, um, me. That was Susan Randall
0: of VT Private Eye. Her website is vtprivateeye.com, and I'll put that link up on my website. I'm happy to say that Susan and her boyfriend, or her man-friend, or whatever you call it when you're our age and you're not married, they are moving in together this fall, so hopefully the lights will be on when she gets home, at least more often. The music for this show was made by Vermont musicians Brian Clark and Mike D'Onofrio. If you have comment on the show, I'd love to hear it. I'm sure Susan would love to hear it. Just go to the show page, and at the bottom, you'll see a comment box. I want to thank all of the people who have made donations to the show. I appreciate them a lot. And if you'd like to make a donation, you can find a green Donate button on the upper right-hand corner of my website, which is rumblestripvermont.com. This is Erica Heilman. Thanks for listening.